And yes, information is deadly to the governments, the right information, the truth. And that is why both journalism and literature become so subversive and so dangerous to authoritarian rules. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Today I'm returning to a conversation recorded last year with best-selling author Azar Nafizi. We discussed her book, Reading Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. It feels important to revisit this at the one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It has also been a year when several books were banned around the United States. And we have seen women standing up to authoritarian regimes around the world. If you are listening on KXCV or the Bearcat Public Media app, welcome. I'm glad you're here. On Real Fiction, I speak with authors, journalists, and changemakers. We're always looking for the overlooked angles and the ethical gray areas on the big issues of the day. All Real Fiction episodes are available on KXCV's Public Media app and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes on realfictionradio.com. I'll be back in a moment with author Azar Nafizi. My guest today is Azar Nafizi. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Reading Lolita in Tehran, as well as Things I've Been Silent About and The Republic of Imagination. She is currently a fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. She lives in Washington, D.C., and her new book is Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. The book considers literature's role in an age of censorship of books in the free press. It challenges us to see ourselves and our adversaries on the pages of fiction. Azar Nafizi, it's such an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. I can't believe the timeliness of this book. I began reading it, you know, as uh, we we all watched the headlines when yeah. Russia invaded Ukraine. And but I first want to start with just how this book is set up because it sets the tone for how we can use it as a lens into what we're seeing today. You wrote this book largely from November 19, two thousand nineteen to. June 2020. And it's in the form of letters to your late father, who was a former mayor of Tehran. And then he spent some years in jail as a political prisoner shortly after the Shah of Iran was removed from power. And I was so uh, fascinated by a line that occurs early in the book. You write, I am interested in ways through which literature and art resist seats of power not only that of kings and tyrants, but the tyrants within us as well. That is a really strong (laughs) sentence. And the word subversive in the title and the word tyrant from that quote are really strong, intimidating. What what do you mean by our inner tyrant? Well, um, actually, I can um, refer you to two of the um, writers um, that uh, I mentioned in Read Dangerously. Uh, One is James Baldwin. 
who's very yes. aware of what he calls the evil within. He says that he's afraid of the evil within me and the evil without. Um, and um, uh, Elias Khoury in G Gate of the Sun, in a chapter which is actually about war, he talks about the, uh, one's enemy being uh, in the mirror. You look in the mirror and you look into the eyes of your enemy and you see yourself. Uh, mm. I mean, you know, totalitarian mindsets can destroy you in different ways. One way is to go after you physically. Um, jail you, torture you, and even kill. Uh, so it is a process of el elimination. The other one, which I call the evil or the tyrant within, um, is not um, that straightforward where you go after someone. Uh, it is more subtle, but just as effective, and it empties an individual of his or her sense of integrity and identity by taking away his or her principles and values from her so that you become your enemy. You'd act the way they do, and that is so dangerous. One good example is uh, Baldwin himself. Uh, uh, he throws, he's enraged by restaurants that don't allow him in because he's African-American. And in one restaurant, he throws a glass of water uh, at the waitress. And then he says how afraid he was of the hatred sitting in his lap. That, uh, mm. you know, we, I, I, when I was in this, living in the Islamic Republic and later here in response to the former president and some of his supporters, I found myself uh, acting the way they did. I just wanted them eliminated. I wanted them gone. And that was not the person I liked to be. As you were speaking about James Baldwin and his uh, how he kind of uh, interrogated his own reaction to something that troubled him, when you think about the world, what you've experienced in Tehran and what's happening today, what do you think our individual responsibility is to conquer these very negative feelings that we have? No, um, individuals who live under oppression or live during wars, as we see right now with Ukraine, they become creative. We want to not allow uh, those who oppress us have control over our destiny. Uh, I mean, when you're thrown in jail, you can't do much about it. But uh, I mean, uh, getting out of jail uh, depends as much on uh, the person who put you there. Uh, but there are other ways of resistance, uh, of not giving in your identity to someone else. The first experience I had in this regard was my father. As you mentioned, they uh, put him in jail. Um, it wasn't after the Shah was gone. It, it was before. It was during his ah, reign. Thank you for clarifying um, that. The, and uh, uh, they con disconnected his relationship to the world. 
Uh, he physically could not even go home. But what he did, which is very important to me, is that he created free spaces in that small room. He would get up at five in the morning and walk around the room for miles so that he would not be giving in to, um, you know, uh, laziness. And he would read write, as well as translate poems and uh, stories and essays uh, from all over the world and paint and from one of the other prisoners learn a new language, which was in fact Russian. So the, the world was taken away from him, but he brought the world into his little room and there wasn't much they can do with his imagination. That was free. There's so many stories like this. Uh, I found it, find loads of stories like this um, uh, living in the Islamic Republic, especially the way women stood up to the regime by um, refusing to do what they were told to do. Uh, you know, this is uh, something that you have a rather unique insight into, and that is access to information when it's cut off. You were just speaking about your father in in jail. Somehow he had access to some material to read. I'd be interested in what that was. And then more broadly, um, you know, as we're watching the crackdowns on protests in Russia, we know every day that a new social media platform is um, shut down. It is banned and independent news outlets have uh, been shuttered. The information flow is Limited, And some of the individuals that I follow in uh, Russia have have had to use uh, VPNs or virtual private networks to to access the Internet and gain information. So I'm wondering, as you watch what's happening, um, what goes through your mind as you're watching events in Russia and Ukraine in terms of the flow of information? Because you've you've witnessed this firsthand in Iran. Yeah, we were witnesses firsthand in Iran, but um, also uh, in order to get uh, true uh, news uh, from the world, we had to listen. We listened to Radio Free Iran or Radio Farda, they called it, hmm. Voice of America, BBC, uh, for, uh, the Persian version of BBC, German and French um, radios. So that was how. Uh, we got uh, most of our information. Uh, then uh, satellites came to Iran and they were forbidden. The regime would raid, they raided our house, I mentioned it in Reading Lolita, uh, for uh, satellites and people would use all sorts of uh, creative ways to disguise the satellites. They would hide them by having their wash their laundry hang in front of the satellites and behind the satellites so that they could not see it. Uh, in the poorer areas of uh, Tehran and other cities where people could not afford uh, each of them to have a satellite, one family uh, would have one and the others would buy tickets to come and watch the forbidden uh, vid video. Mm. And there were forbidden videos uh, there were these special people who would uh, sell you or rent you uh, 
forbidden videos. And in this manner, um, Iranians kept themselves up to date. Uh, these are the creative ways that when we are safe, we do not think of. We develop them uh, during times of stress. And yes, information is deadly to the governments, the right information, the truth. And that is why both journalism and literature become so subversive and so dangerous to authoritarian rules. Yes, journalists are under threat uh, on a daily basis, but in a conflict zone, in a war or in an in an oppressive with an oppressive regime, it's sometimes impossible to to do their work and to stay alive. Um, when we look at how you have set up this book, uh, and again, uh, you have written this book, Read Dangerously, as a series of letters. And in the letters, you reflect upon the writings of authors from whom you've gained uh, insights and comfort during troubling times. And I found the mix of Salman Rushdie, Plato and Ray Bradbury to be a really interesting <laughs> mix to put into one letter. I love the way that you 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 indicated how much time you spent on a letter. It seemed like about you would really pour over the contents of a letter that was written to intended for your father for about a month. So these are deep deep really th deep letters. But there are two little nuggets that stayed with me. And you'll have to forgive me because, you know, you, you've always encouraged imagination. And for some reason, my imaginative mind connected these two things. And it is this. So Salman Rushdie has a concept of discomfort with a plural identity. And I know very clearly that you set the context for uh, migrants, refugees, and how you can feel different fragments of oneself if you're moving through the world. Uh, as the second piece is from Bradbury. And the quote is, censorship that is dangerous to the well-being of a society, but also the mindlessness created by the constant demand for entertainment and sensationalism, a desire to remain on the surface and avoid the complexities and difficulties presented by ideas and imagination. And for some reason, I connected these two because I think that in this world of social media, we're not always uh, clear or careful with our identity. I think sometimes our our online identity is uh, can shift. It becomes theatrical. It it can become a parroting chorus depending on our curated social media feeds. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I really wonder if all of us are struggling with our identities given this need for <laughs> entertainment. Does that make any sense to you? Can you see how I connected those two things? That makes so much sense to me <laughs> that, that I wish you would go on talking about it, actually, you know, because uh, you're right on uh, uh, the spot, uh, spot on. I mean, that is exactly uh, the danger of uh, social media. Um, this fabricated identities we create for ourselves and uh, we might even believe uh, that they are real. 
but they're not. And uh, it is fabricated identities we deal with. Then there are identities where other people define our identities and sort of capture us within um, uh, the prison of their definitions of who we are or what we are. And, uh, of course, the fragmentation that... uh, Uh, Rushdi talks about. Um, I always try to think, that is why I think that social media should be um, complementary to life, but not replace it. Mm. This is our problem today, that uh, reality is being replaced by social media. The assault on imagination and ideas, the assault on uh, books and on storytelling begins with with this uh, trait. Uh, We need to be safe and comfortable. That is the part. Well, no, before that, I just wanted to say that um, for me, I... I feel that I have a double identity. Um, I like the idea that in America, the country you come from comes to this new country with you. Uh, This is the positive side of it. Uh, As an immigrant, I am not just American, but I am an Iranian American. And this is what gives America its vitality that people come from all over the world to this country and they bring their world with them. They bring a different way of looking at America. Uh, Like uh, I look at my uh, students uh, whom I talked about in reading Lolita coming to America and how they brought their perception of America with them. So through that, the country is constantly in a state of change and flux and constantly renewing itself, resurrecting itself. Uh, So that aspect of it I like. The last thing uh, was about what you said about Ray Bradbury. Yeah, Bradbury says um, you don't have to burn books to uh, destroy a culture. All you have to do is to get people not to read books. Indifference is um, the most dangerous thing we are uh, dealing with here. Uh, Saul Bellow used to say, what threatens us in democratic societies is our sleeping consciousness and our atrophy of feeling. And that is what uh, I'm afraid of. I, I have been afraid of when I came back to United States and I saw how complacent uh, people have become, how much um, they're after comfort. You notice how many times a day people talk about, this is not comfortable for me. I don't want to be disturbed by this. Well, I believe with James Baldwin that artists are here to disturb the peace. I mean... Imagination and ideas, books, are rooted in reality. Their ambiguity, their complexity, their paradoxical nature, they all, the difficulties they put in our way, um, the way they make us uncomfortable. If we cannot tolerate these in books, if books disturb us to the point where we want to destroy them or censor them and ban them, then how are we going to fight and stand up to 
the difficulties we face in reality, the ambiguities and the complexities of reality. Uh, that is the main question, because imaginative knowledge is a way of relating to the world, perceiving the world, and changing the world. You can't just take it out of the equation and say from tomorrow, we won't imagine, we'll use our iPhones instead. You have a wonderful sentence in the, a wonderful quote, I should say, from James Baldwin in the book, uh, and you just uh, alluded to him. And the quote is, the, this aversion to pain has now reached such epic proportions in America that we ban anything that is painful. And I just had the experience of having a conversation with some family members about what is happening in Ukraine. And they said, oh, I, I just, I can't look at it. I can't talk about it. It's too painful. I, my, my mind will go to a dark place. So that in and of itself can create a tension point in a family dynamic. But And I, I would love to know from you, because you do discuss this a bit in the book, how were you raised to think about painful events that affected your family? Well, you know, um, storytelling, in fact, for our family became a way of both communication and standing up to pain. Uh, somehow reading about others and seeing how, you know, even... In children's stories, you see this. Um, yeah. Look at uh, the classics uh, uh, from um, Pinocchio to The Little Prince to Charlotte's Web. Um, all of these stories uh, have um, the protagonists in the story face pain, face um anguish uh, and grief and, and, and fear. Uh, and uh, actually the maturity of the protagonist in children's stories comes through um, pain and separation. Uh, like Hansel and Gretel, they yes. are separated. The, their parents uh, leave them in the, in the forest and um, they have to face the witch and through facing to the witch and through destroying the witch, they gain a new maturity. Uh, so pain is there to test us. Are we ready to live? And if we are ready to live, we cannot just be always happy, always complacent and comfortable. We also have grief and we also have pain to deal with. And uh, I think that um, stories are one way of dealing with pain, experiencing the pain, and uh, finding ways of standing up to it. When I think about the great stories that address exactly what you described, in many, if not most cases, there is a, a conclusion or at least an attempt to explain the pain, to put it in some sort of order, and to kind of think about the world on a hopeful note, um, you have a, a quote from the great Czech 
playwright Václav Havel, um, and I found it very pra uh, pragmatic for what we're going through right now. You, you highlight this, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. As you think about this book that has just entered the world uh, in the past month, what, what do you hope the reader will take from, from that perspective? Well, you know, the quote you mentioned uh, from Havel uh, makes us a distinction between optimism and hope. And he says that hope is not optimism because optimism uh, is based on also some power in the outside world. Hope relates directly and indirectly to the individual hoping it. And um, you take control over your life by not uh, allowing uh, your beliefs and principles, the way you live, be jeopardized uh, by uh, any kind of mishap that you might face uh, in real life. What Havel sticks to are things that remain, things that endure, things that the individual can have control over. That is making sense of the world. That is, that is where the hope lies, trying to understand the world, trying to see that your life has some meaning, that no matter how you die, it is important to know that how you have lived and that attitude, how you have lived, you have control over it till the day you die. You can't, we can't um, prevent ourselves from death. We cannot uh, remain immune from death, but we can live in a way that we are prepared to even face the absoluteness of death. Whew. That is a very powerful thing to think about. I don't know that that we're all um, grounded in that framework, which is why I hope listeners will uh, get a copy of Read Dangerously. This is a new book by um, the incredible author Azar Nafizi. The full title is Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. I know this was a difficult, challenging book to write, um, if I could ask, you know, what are, are you, is there something you can share about what you're working on now or are you kind of taking a, a pause between big books? Well, I am uh, taking a pause and I'm also, as I'm enjoying so much myself with you, um, talk about uh, the new book. So uh, it is difficult to come with any concrete plans, but in the back of my mind for quite a few years now, um, it has been this idea of writing about the side of Iran that the world has neglected to see. Um, it's amazing civil society, it's ancient uh, history, it's mm -hmm. vibrant culture. And to um, show people uh, that uh, uh, democracy and freedom uh, is not a Western entity. It is through Iran I wanted to show that democracy and um, freedom um, like totalitarianism and autocracy uh, exist in all parts of the world. They are not possession of one single part of the world. And that democracy and freedom in a country named Iran 
will help democracy and freedom in a country named um, uh, United States of America. Mm. Look at how Ukraine proved that point to us. How many of us knew even Ukraine existed? We knew so little about it. It's thousands of miles away from us. We don't speak the language of its people. We don't know those people. And yet, uh, within a month, they are in our homes. And what they do, where they go, whether they will be victorious, will directly affect how United States, where it will go and how it will be affected in terms of uh, its democratic institutions. I can't thank you enough, Azara Nafisi, for joining Real Fiction today. It's been such an honor uh, to have you on the program, so enlightening and a real education to hear directly from you about these complicated, important issues. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. All Real Fiction episodes are available on KXCV's public media app and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes on realfictionradio.com. I have guest profiles on the website, along with links to some of the specific things we discuss in case you're interested in more background information. Real Fiction is also on most social media platforms. You can find me there. And a reminder that Real Fiction airs on Saturdays, 1130 on KXCV. Thanks for listening.